go to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the verses up on the screen so everybody can follow along. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages... He might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When God made the world, um, he made everything perfect. Everything was exactly like he wanted it. That is a reflection of him. Um, of all the ways in the Bible that God describes himself, um, they all fall under the umbrella of holy. And holiness is a, is a concept that we, I think, really struggle to understand. Um, we tend to think it's like the, the most extreme uh, trait or quality, like it's like the, the absolutely like best um, thing we could possibly think of that that would be holy, you know. Um, you know, like ivory soap back in the day, so it's 99.9% pure, you know, and we say, okay, if it was 100% pure, then it would be holy, you know, like it's the most pure it, it can get. Um, and there, like, like that's that's a part of it, I guess, you know, that, that God is 100% pure. He is, um, there is no wrongness in him. There is no impurity in him anywhere. But the, the thing about the concept of being holy really means that he's, just completely other, you know, like, like he's, he's separate, um, you know, saying that he's, you know, more pure than ivory soap, uh, doesn't really cut it. Um, he is just in a completely other category, a other, other realm. Like we can't even fathom it. You know, we have to dumb it down to like a little bit better than ivory soap, you know, to even kind of understand it. Um, we just, we just can't. Um, so, so we do the best that we can, and we understand that, that he is absolutely perfect, absolutely pure, absolutely, um, like, there's this, he's, he's holy. I mean, that's, that's the only way to describe it. And everything about God flows from that holiness. So when we say that God is uh, gracious, um, he's not just gracious the way that we are gracious to each other. His, his grace comes from the fact that he is holy. 
his compassion is not, you know, compassion that we have for each other. It, it flows from being holy. So it's a whole other kind of compassion, a whole other kind of grace, a whole kind of uh, mercy. I mean, it's completely separate. Now, when God created the world, um, his creation was a reflection of, of him. And he was, it was perfect. Everything was perfect. The, the mountains were perfect. The, the water was perfect. The trees were perfect. And he created this perfect garden in this perfect place. And he created this, this, this perfect Adam and this perfect Eve. And everything was, was just like he wanted it. And he provided for, for the, their every need. And everything was just great. And, um, but, you know, God wants to be loved and adored and praised because he's God and because he's holy, you know, he, he deserves that. You know, he's not this egomaniac. He's God, and, like, he has earned all of it, so to speak, just by being him, himself. And so um, so that praise and that love, I mean, it, Adam and Eve would just be robots, right, if, if there were, were no options. You know, there's, there's an element of, of choice that comes with love and with worship and stuff. And so God gave them, like, trillions of reasons to, to choose him. This, this big garden, every need they had was, was met. Everything was, was perfect. Um, he was there with them. I mean, they had needed everything. And he has this one tree. He says, don't eat of this tree. You have all these other trees and all this other stuff and all these other reflections of me. So choosing all these things, that's choosing me. Choosing that tree, that's choosing not me. And so by giving them this choice, um, by them choosing him, then that's, that's, that's real love. That's real worship. It's responding to the worth uh, of who he is. And if you're familiar with the story, Adam and Eve um, could not get away from that, that one option over here. Trillions on this side to choose God. Um, choosing him, trillions. Choosing not him, one. They went with the one. And what happened, um, well, there's, there's a lot of things that, that came from that. Um, one is that they were separated from God. Because as one who is pure and holy, he cannot be in the presence of anything that is not pure or holy. Because just the slightest bit of impurity will, will taint something. And, so, um, and God cannot be in the presence of anything less than himself. And so when they chose not him, that's when sin came into the picture. You know, and that's the, that's what we sing about, how he, he conquered that. He defeated sin, and that's what Easter is all about, is, is Christ overcoming that. And that's that's what happened was Adam and Eve, they chose not God. And so they were separated from him. And they had kids, and their kids inherited that. And they chose not God, and, and all the way down. And so basically all of us are way down this family tree, and every one of us has chosen not God whether it's selfishness, we've chosen money, we've chosen, uh, you know, based on pride, whatever. We've all chosen things that are not God. And so all of us, just like Adam and Eve, have been separated from God because of that not holy aspect. And that's why when, when we talk about... Um, about Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Adam and Eve did, and that's what they passed on. That's why all of us, uh, that, like 
that's that's just the boat that we're all in. That's where humanity found itself. Separated from God because he can't be in the presence of anything that's not holy. Now that's, you know, that's not the perfect creation, you know, that God, you know, designed in the garden. But that's that's where we find ourselves. Separated. Another thing that, that happened is basically all of humanity wound up um once you're separated, it's not just a physical separation, but there's a there's there's something that, that is unseen that that happens. And that separation is like the best way I can describe it is is like when uh, like this time of year and a couple of different times throughout the year when people go and they, and they and they trim back all their trees and bushes and all that kind of stuff then they make the big pile out by the road and uh, everybody has their big piles out there and then like the big truck with the claw comes by which is like the most awesome day and you just watch them go down the street and there's a big claw comes out and like picks up the branches and like comes and like drops it in the truck you know um, all those branches have been cut off from their life source. Jesus described it just like that. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches, okay? I'm the trunk of the tree, you are all the branches that come off and have the leaves and stuff like that. So what happened in, is, you know, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, not only were they separated from God because he can't be in the presence of um, sin because he is holy, um, there's also, like, you, they were cut off from their life source. The vine and the branches were separated, and so, really, like, like humanity is like, is like, the, like this pile of branches that's like piled up at the end of somebody's driveway. They've been severed from their life source. They're not getting water. They're not getting nutrients. And what happens is that pile um, is, is dead. It may look alive at first. It might be kind of green. But um, I have this, this pile around the back corner of my house that I forgot that I made. And I'm not sure why I put it there. Um, but like it is like completely dead, like a fire hazard now. You know, it's like so dead and dry. And that's that is what has happened with humanity is um, just this big pile of of dead limbs and clippings and shrubs that is just piled up because we were cut off from our life source. And so in the garden, that's what happened. They were separated because they were no longer. Um, they don't, no longer met the qualifications to be in the presence of God, but also they're cut off from their life source, and all of us cut off from our life source because of, of sin. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, um, says, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, that's what it's, that's what it's talking about. You were cut off because you were no longer you no longer met the qualifications to be in the presence of the Holy One. You were you were severed. You were cut off from your life source, and now you are dead. And that doesn't tend to sit well, you know, with with a lot of folks. You know, sounds kind of judgmental. And I think sometimes we as Christians, especially as preacher types, can really we can really make it sound really judgmental. When you look at it from God's perspective. As the Holy One, I mean, he's not going to stop being holy just because Adam and Eve chose not him and passed it on and passed it on, and we've all chosen not him. He's not going to stop being God just so he can bring back to life that pile of dead limbs. So that's what it says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And the thing about those those limbs and all that stuff that's, that's laying there at the end of the driveway, they, they can't do anything about their situation. 
you know. They can't, like, muster up this plan, you know, all the branches laying there, like, all right, here's what we're going to do, you know. Um, they might have hands because we need to shovel, <laughs> you know. No. They don't come up with this plan to, like, join together and make one big, uh, you know, like, trunk and, like, plant themselves at the end of your driveway and then have, like, uh, no, it's, it, they can't do anything. They can just, all they can do is lay there and die. Even if they really had personalities, like I'm giving them for some reason, um, even if they really had personality, there's nothing they could do. They're helpless. There's not a single thing that something or someone is dead can do about their condition. You can't. It's irreversible. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay? That's like I was saying. Basically, by choosing not God, by being disobedient, by choosing anything but him, um, you're separated and you're dead. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. That's, that's how we end up choosing not God. That nature in us that was passed from Adam and Eve to their kids and then on and on and on and on and on. That those desires and those thoughts that we have, we chase them, we pursue them, and we choose not God. And it led to death, and it maintains death, and death is death. Dead in that. The next part is very interesting, the end of verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Well, that's a happy thought, right? Easter service, objects of wrath. Here's the thing. Uh, some translations, would they say uh, children of wrath or children under wrath. Wrath is something that... Uh, we can all like understand wrath is a it's it's a response to um injustice to evil um to to wrong um you you can experience uh we we experience wrath all the time you know wrath is um when um a husband defends his wife because her coworker was being inappropriate okay when um, when you see somebody getting picked on and they can't defend themselves, and there's what wrath is not you being like, hey, that's really wrong. Wrath is you going over and you doing something about it. You know, wrath is is an action. It's an emotional response when you see something and it evokes something, and you're like, I have to get involved. I have to do something. I'm not going to just sit back and be offended by this. Like wrath is, is is a verb. Like it's it goes after it. There's you step in and you do something about it. You see someone that's homeless. You see some, you know, somebody's, I don't know, kicking them. You go over and you stop it. Okay, that's that's wrath. Wrath also reflects personality. Okay, some people's wrath would be um, like you go over to the guys who are kicking the homeless guy. I don't know why I'm going with this analogy. I'm just gonna keep going with it. Um, I have no notes. Uh, forgive me. Um, and they're kicking the homeless guy, and you go over. Some people's wrath would be you go over, you start kicking them. That would be the Hank Hughes wrath. Hank goes over and does some, like, jujitsu something on them, and um, they regret it, you know. 
Some people, that, that, that's how they handle it. Some people's wrath would be going to, to get the cops, to get them arrested. Some people's wrath um, would be like, this would be like my wrath. Like I would stop them, but then like I would like sarcastically, like basically I would find their biggest insecurity and exploit them and just reduce them to nothing and embarrass them. It's a gift. Um, I'm not a violent man. I'm just rude. Uh, but... But, but wrath also has a lot to do with, with, with personality, okay? Now, that's wrath in a, in a human sense. Wrath in a, in a God sense is this. Um, it is God's response to sin. And God's response to sin is that he has to destroy it. And he is obligated by the fact that he is holy. He is the holy one. And that fact, uh, that, like him being holy, he is obligated to destroy sin. It does more than offend him, you know. I mean, it offends him, but it goes, it goes deeper than that. I can be offended by something and not want to completely obliterate it. But God, being the holy one, is obligated by his own holiness to destroy sin. That's, that's the way it is. That's the way that it works. And so here's, here's like, all right. Like the rest, we were objects of wrath, children of wrath. Okay, so here we are. We're, let's go with this pile of dead limbs deal, okay? Here we are with a pile of dead limbs, separated from God because we don't meet the qualifications. We're cut off from the, our life source. We are completely dead. Not a thing we can do about it. Now, that's bad enough, Right? But here's God as the Holy One, and he's got to obliterate sin and destroy it and eliminate its existence completely. That means destroying us. Because sin doesn't float around in the air. Sin is in us. And as the carriers of sin, the only way to destroy sin is to destroy us. So that pile of dead limbs must be destroyed because that's how you destroy sin. That's what it means to be an object of wrath, is that God has got to evoke his wrath. I mean, our sin evokes his wrath, and he's got to respond and destroy us and to pour out every bit of that holy, wrathful anger in response to sin and annihilate it. And it's not pretty. And you get into, you start reading in the Old Testament some of the, like, the descriptions. Like, there's parts of the Old Testament we like to pretend that God's not speaking in first person about his wrath and his anger and the blood that are, of sinners that are covering him, you know. Um, we don't like to pretend those things are there. Like, like Jules in Pulp Fiction, when he comes in and he reads and he quotes the scripture before he kills the guy. I mean, like, we're like, that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. It is in the Bible. And that's his wrath being poured out on the pile of dead limbs. He's got to destroy it. He has to. So here's, here's what is amazing about, you know, we sing about Jesus on the cross and all this kind of stuff, and, and, and immediately we think about the physical torture and the pain that he went through and all the blood that was shed and, um, and the humiliation, the fact that he, he, you know, he suffocated, you know, and, I mean, like, it was completely, physically just completely horrible. But, but think about the other aspects of what's going on. There's Jesus 
completely sinless, completely innocent. And he's got the sins of all this whole pile of dead leaves, okay, and branches, and all these limbs, and all that sin applied to him. I'm going to point to me, but you know I'm talking about him, okay? No lightning. <laughs> um, all that applied to him. So now he's cut off from the life source. Now he doesn't meet the qualifications. It says that God, the Father, had to turn his head because he couldn't bear to look. Imagine for the first time Jesus Christ, who was God, being cut off, being separated because of that pile of dead limbs. So really the physical pain was just the beginning. Now there's the abandonment of the Father and being cut off from that life source for the first time for stuff that he didn't even do. But then... Now he becomes the object of wrath. And every one of us that was in this pile, and that wrath of God that was going to be poured out, it was redirected from the pile of leaves and limbs and shrubs, from your life, from my life. It was redirected from him, I mean from you to him. He has all that wrath, that holy anger responding to sin being poured into him. So we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were objects of wrath. And we have to understand that that's why, that's why it says, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. I think that's a really misunderstood part about the gospel. We don't like. I don't understand. Like, so why does why is the wages of sin is death? Why is that the the price that must be paid? I don't understand. Why would God, you know, kill me because I don't love Him, because I don't choose Him, because I don't, you know, worship Him, because I don't want to be a Christian? You know, like, why would God kill me? Why would God send me to hell? That, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense. Until we see it in terms of the Holy One responding to sin. And it kind of changes you. Like, oh, so that's why the wages of sin is death. Because God has to destroy sin. He's obligated. He has to. The thing is, the Bible says his anger lasts for a moment. But his favor lasts for a lifetime. See, his wrath can be satisfied. He can pour out all of his wrath and destroy sin. That's going to that's gonna come to an end. He's going to run out of wrath. So when sin is gone, he's got no more wrath stored up. It's, all, it's done. Mission accomplished. His anger lasts for a moment. His favor lasts for a lifetime. And that's why verse 4 gives us something amazing to celebrate. Verse 3 says, Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but 
because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Look at that. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. As as offended and as uh, wrathful as our sin made God, he, all those dead limbs that are over there, because of what Jesus did and that wrath that should have been poured on us was actually poured onto him, all the wrath of God poured into, into him. Because of that, then those dead limbs start to rattle a little bit. And those limbs that uh, were dead, which would be you and me, are, are now alive. Same thing that happened to Jesus happens to us. Jesus died. Okay, we were dead. God raised Jesus up. God raises us up. We follow in the pattern that has happened with him. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The word saved is thrown around church so much. That's what we're saved from. We're saved from that separation eternally. We're saved from not being qualified to be in his presence. We've been saved from the wrath of God being poured out on us and us being destroyed. We're, we're saved from just an eternity of being separated from him. No more life source, no more holy one, no more love, no more compassion. That is what we have been saved from. And it's only because God is gracious. I mean, here's this situation, these dead limbs and those limbs deserved every bit of whatever they get. And God says, no, I'm going to rescue the limbs. I'm going to make a way for the limbs to be alive again because I created them to be alive. I want them to be alive. And even though they messed up, I can fix this. So I'm going to come to the earth and I'm going to take the wrath. I'm going to take the sin. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to do that. God made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead. It's amazing. That's what, I mean, that's what, that's what we celebrate. That's what the gospel is about. A lot of times people think the gospel is about do's and don'ts, you know, keeping these rules and going to church and this and this and this. Like, no, no, the gospel is about life. It's about being, about crossing over from, from being dead to being alive. I'm watching a dead limb all of a sudden become alive and all this fruit comes out of it. That's what the gospel is about. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. All right? Let's think about that for a second. He made us alive, raises us up, and also, like, elevates us. Puts us on display. Why would he do that? 
This is why he would do that. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know why he did that according to Scripture? He made us alive and raised us up and has seated us and has put us on display. Why? So that everybody will know how awesome he is. So everybody will look at our lives and be like, there, there is a God in heaven. Because there's been a change in that person, you know? That is a life that has been completely revolutionized. There's something that happens when, when, we come, when we get reconnected to God again, reconnected to the life source, connected to the Holy One again. Transformation begins to happen in our lives. And why would God do that? Why? So you can get a promotion at work? No. No. So 2008 could be better in 2007? No. So you can be happy? No. He did it because he gets the glory for it. He wants everybody to look at your life and say, okay, the God that that, that person serves, like that's, that's the real deal right there. We are evidences of the grace and the love of God that walk this earth every single day. And God's, God is constantly screaming through your life and through my life, look how good I am. Look how much I can heal. Look how much I can restore. Look how, look how I can turn any situation around. Look how I have the power to change any human life. Look, 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 look. Look at my church. Look how beautiful she is. Look, she's an expression and a reflection of my goodness and my grace incomparable riches of my grace that's that's the point that's what easter is about and we have to understand that when when jesus was on the cross um you were not on his mind if you were on his mind he was probably not real happy with you right then because there's a bunch of wrath coming at him the joy set before christ the reason why he endured the cross is because the cross was going to be the, the, the single act in history that brings the most glory to God the Father. That is the reason why he did it. Everything good in our lives, everything we can boast about, everything that we're like, like, yes, God's favor is with me, his blessing is on me, his presence is with me. All those things are great, but all that is very much second, third, fourth, all the way down to him getting glory for your changed life and my changed life. That's the point. Yes, Jesus died for you. More importantly, Jesus died for God. And you know what? I'm great with that. I will be way down on the list. I could be last on the list. Bottom line, he died. I'm alive because of it. And I'm cool with not being number one. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. It is by grace that we are saved. 
Not a thing we can do to earn it. Try as we may. People all over the world trying to get to God, trying to get to God, trying to get to God. Try this path. Try this path. Try this way. Try this line of thinking. Try this philosophy. Try this religion. Try this whatever. Trying to get to God. Trying to get to God. It's a pile of dead limbs. Can't do anything about it. The gospel that the Bible communicates is about God coming to us. Isn't that great? Doesn't it make you just want to just explode? God came to you. It is by grace you've been saved. That's why we sing. That's why we cherish this book. That's why we love one another. That's why we don't withhold forgiveness and graciousness. That's why we are merciful and kind. Is because God has made us alive with Christ and seated us with him and has put us out there in the world to reflect him. That's the Easter story. And it impacts every day of your life and my life. Now sure, like we still we still wrestle with sin. Now that we're alive, we're just able to fight the battle whereas before we were dead. We couldn't fight. <laughs> Can't do anything when you're dead. Now we're alive. Now we can fight it. And sometimes, you know what? Yeah, we still we still choose not God. I still choose not God. But Jesus Christ has the power to remedy that in my life. And on the cross, Jesus took the wrath for that. Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. I will. Says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more wrath that God's just storing up for the day that you mess up. No, it's done for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have been reconnected to Him, for those who have, have repented of all uh, of choosing not God and placed their faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And have been reconnected to him. And that limb has been rejoined to the branch again. I mean to the trunk of the tree again. No condemnation. So now we live. And that life source flows through us. And those days when we choose not God, those times we choose not Him again, we're covered by what He did. And the condemnation that we feel is just self-inflicted. It's not coming from God. 
Because now we're alive, we can fight it. We fight it together. Because we are his church. And one day, we're going to experience heaven together, where there won't be a fight anymore. And all us branches who are now alive and bearing fruit and stuff, we'll all be together, make one big tree. It'd be great. And it's all so that God can be glorified. It's a return to the beginning of the story where everything is perfect. And while we live on the earth, life is just not going to be perfect. It's just not. But one day, it'll, it'll be back the way God designed it. And we'll be with him. We'll be the ones singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus is great, isn't he? Let's pray together.